That's good. Okay, so we are doing a series called Live Different on the book of Daniel. And um, so if any of you were here last week, you may remember that Laura issued a challenge to us. And there were, there were two specific uh, parts of this. Um, it was a challenge to live differently in, in our culture. And so, I, sorry, I have two questions. I want to take one minute from four or five people to share, to answer these two questions. Uh, what did you do to live different this week? And how did it go? So here are some of the examples um, that we, we had. Uh, read my Bible at work, give someone a book by a Christian author, buy a stranger's coffee, prefer someone else in some way, offer to meet someone's needs, publicly honor and encourage someone in front of others, invite a person to a church event. So um, if anyone did something intentional this week to live differently, can you just come up right now? I'd just love to take just one minute. I know it's speaking in front of people, but it's, uh, I, can, I can kind of get us started anyway. Do, okay. I hope it's not going to be completely silent. Yes, people. Very happy about this. Okay. No. Do you want to, do you want to start? Okay. Just, yeah. 30 seconds to a minute. I just bought three CDs for someone. Okay. I just felt I needed to do this. Somebody didn't have any Christian worship and I thought... They've got to start out with some good stuff, so I just went out and bought some. And they're not here today, so I can't pass them on. But they're here, ready and waiting. Thank you. Okay, I, I very simply booked a little room at work. It's got no windows in. It was dark. I didn't put the light on, and I just worshipped the Lord for, like, I don't know, 20 minutes, half an hour. So that was my lunch break. And uh, that made a huge difference. Thank you. I'm not completely sure I wouldn't have done this anyway, but after last week's talk, I really felt that um, there's a lady just across the road from us who's just had a baby, and I wanted to cook them a meal. Didn't quite get to cook them a meal. However, um, yesterday, I think it was, I heard both her two-year-old and her newborn baby absolutely yelling their heads off. Um, bear in mind, we live in a little close. I thought to knock on the door now and say, do you want a hand? is kind of a bit rude, because um, <clears throat> it means I've heard her babies. But I really felt to do so and go and see if she needed a hand. And I walked up to her door and she just looked at me and was like, thank you, come in, come in. And she threw the baby essentially at me and said, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you so much. Um, I just don't know what to do when they're both crying. And she said, you're an absolute lifesaver. Thank you so much. And I said to her when I was there, I really feel, you know, you've been on my heart. Um, I really want to make you a meal. And I've been thinking about it all week, but I didn't know what to cook. I said, do you would you like me to do that? Oh, no, 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 no. She said, it's fine. And I said, no, 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 seriously, I'd like to cook you a meal. What do you like? She said, oh, vegetarian? <laughs> um, and no mushrooms. I was like, okay, I'll do that. I'll get that done. So that's for, that's for this week. But um, I made a start. Um, very briefly, so um, where I work, I'm a school nurse, but um, we work during the summer holidays as well. But obviously it's a bit quieter during the summer holidays, so I managed to sit round with my boss and some of my other colleagues and interpret their dreams at lunchtime. And um, no, it's, it's, they know that I'm a bit of a crazy one at work, but I don't often get time to take lunch, so, um, but I just felt God really encouraged them through that. So that was really... That's, that's brave, that's wonderful, thank you. Thank you so much. So... Um, for myself, kind of knowing uh, this challenge was going on, I, 
I actually happen to have a really interesting con uh, conversation with my neighbor. Um, I, I share a wall with him. So, um, <laughs> we, uh, yeah, we're, we're, aware, we're aware of how we live e each other's lives. Um, and uh, so we, we had a really great heart-to-heart. -heart. He was telling me all about his travels, and uh, I mentioned that I was speaking today, and, uh, and he just started talking about faith, and he's, he's, uh, he's a guy that's kind of like, well, you know, whatever gets you through in life, and, you know, as long as it's not hurting anyone, that's, that's absolutely fine. I totally respect that. I'm, you know, I'm open-minded all this stuff. Uh, and, and so I just, I just kind of came away from that conversation going, okay, well, we explored some territory that we've never talked about before. He's a very straight talker, which is great. Um, so I know, I can know what he's thinking without a filter. Um, and then I just, I just felt, you know what? I would love for him to explore who Jesus is. So I bought a copy of C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity and I just knocked on his door and I said, hey, look, I'm not trying to convert you, although maybe I am. Um, here's the guy that wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, you know, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, all, all those books, C.S. Lewis. He, he has a short but really short chapters, but this just opens the door. What is the Christian faith? Who is Jesus? What's it all about? I think it's, it's worth reading. Um, if it lives on your bookshelf, that's fine, but if you do read a couple of chapters, get back to me. And so I've, I've just given it to him. So that was one intentional way that I thought, you know, let's share Jesus with someone. Cool. So uh, that was the challenge. So we're going to quickly explore the story so far leading up to the book of Daniel. Um, so I'm just going to sort my notes out. Great. So um, from the beginning, uh, you cannot read that, but I will read it for you. Uh, that says creation and rebellion. No, no, I'm doing my best with the technology. Creation and rebellion. So it starts off with God created a good world with Adam and Eve, um, but they were tempted and saw the fruit and desired wisdom. And they chose not to listen to God's voice, but to find what was good and evil on their own terms. And that was the rebellion. So it spirals out of control fairly quickly. Uh, leading to a whole civilization called Babylon, or in our Bibles, it's known as the Tower of Babel, but it's the same word, Babylon and Babel, the same, that defined evil as good. And so we come to the patriarchs, it's the second one. And these story zooms in on one family. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, better for the slides. Um, and it's Abraham, and God calls him out of Babylon and through, and he says, you will become a great nation. I'm going to take you to a promised land and I'm going to bless you and all the world will be blessed through you. And so he's calling his descendants to become a new type of human that will show the world what God is really like. So that leads on to, uh, and from, from then on, that nation, that, that family are known as Israel. So they moved down to Egypt during a time of famine <clears throat> and they're given the best of the land, but a few generations later, they're enslaved by the Egyptian people and they live in slavery for a long time. And they start crying out to God. So God raises up Moses and Joshua to lead them out of slavery and into that promised land promised to Abraham. So they go into the kingdom and they take it with, with Joshua and they finally become this powerful kingdom 
in their promised land and they're fruitful and they multiply and God blesses them and they, this is their call to become a light to the nations to show what God is like under, and they have David and Solomon and yet repeatedly from Solomon onwards they have series of kings after kings that fail to follow God and the promises they've made to him and they fracture and they split and despite the many warnings of the prophets they are exiled back to the very place that they began Babylon. And that's where the story of Daniel takes place. Back at square one. So, and then, you know, the story does go on, um, which eventually leads to Jesus, but we're talking about Daniel today. So, moving through this. Good. The book of Daniel. So, how it starts is, there's an empire, Babylon, huge empire. They defeat Jerusalem. Many are exiled. And um, you see in that number, you have Daniel, you have Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, so Daniel and his friends. And it happened because they had failed, not them, but the leaders of Israel had failed to keep their promises to God, and the prophets had warned them for generations that this was going to happen. So Daniel and his friends go off, taken out of their homes as teenagers, and they get moved to Babylon. And still, God promised to go with them, despite all the failures. God was like, I am not going to abandon you. I will go with you. And so God was speaking into what's life going to be like in Babylon. And so this is, this is what he says to them. I'm going to read from Jeremiah 29. So, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters, so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Also, Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have secured you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. They were called to bless Babylon, this foreign invader that defeated them. And they would be blessed because of it. So you can imagine the conflicting emotions there. So quickly, here's, here's the overall structure of the book. And I just want to focus, show you what we're focusing on. So um, we have the past three weeks, if it will load. There we are. These three chapters, one, three, and six. So two weeks ago, we had uh, Daniel arriving in Babylon, and Amy shared on that, and it was, it was really fantastic. So uh, we learned how... Babylon tried to culturally reprogram Daniel and his friends when they arrived. Uh, they, got the, they got new names. They got treated to the best of the land. They got royal food, the best education. Uh, Daniel and his friends served this new empire but kept their Jewish identity by avoiding eating certain foods. And so they put their kind of lives on the line, so to speak. But because they didn't compromise their faith, they were blessed and exalted up to a higher position. And Amy challenged us on what we're consuming, you know, 
the, like Daniel and his friends, they, they avoided certain foods. Well, what are we consuming? The media we watch and read are the things that we are consuming reprogramming us. Uh, do we listen to the Holy Spirit? Um, because we need to re listen to the Spirit and read our Bible to inform our choices in order to live different from the world, because God will bless that. So last week, Laura did the uh, fiery furnace, and I have a cool little transition. Ain't that cool? <laughs> um, bit of fun. Fiery furnace. So last week, um, Daniel and his friend, Daniel's friends, um, how they wouldn't they wouldn't bow down to this big idol that was um, meant to be worshipped, and they just refused. They said, look, that's not happening. Uh, we know the consequences are we're going to be burned alive by fire because of this. But God stepped in and saved them. And they didn't argue. They just accepted the consequences, and they, they said, look, our God will save us. Even if he doesn't, we will not bow down. So what's amazing is they go into the flames, and they come out, and they're completely fine. There's no smell of smoke on them. So the God just recognizes this is, this is the, their God has saved them and they are promoted to a greater level of influence. And so Laura talked about non-participation, choosing to selectively not take part in things our culture celebrates. Um, the idols of worship, uh, sorry, the idols of success, appearance or secularism. Um, why? Because though we are in the world, we are not of this world, we are to live different. And so this week, we are going to talk about the lion's den. So just to cover the rest of the book, uh, I think next week, um, Paul is gonna talk on chapter nine, but there's uh, these other parts of the book. So chapters four and five and two, seven, eight to 10, those are all visions and dreams that get interpreted. And chapter nine is this, this um, chapter of prayer so that's to look forward to. Now, if you are interested in the literary structure of the book and its themes, the Bible Project have an incredible video on it. Go to YouTube, type in the Bible Project Daniel, you'll explore the themes and the structure. It's very interesting. So today we shall talk about the lion's den, Daniel and the lion's den. Okay. Right, we're gonna, we're gonna basically read the whole thing and then we're gonna, we're gonna have a look at what made Daniel live different in that story. Why, why did he choose what he did? And then uh, we'll see if it applies to our lives. So that's where we're gonna go. We're gonna read Daniel 6 line by line. You can turn to it. I'm gonna read it out of the NIV. It'll be on the screen if you can read it. Otherwise, uh, do kind of open it up in your Bibles and read along with me. So. Here we go. I've gone ahead. Okay, back we go. It pleased Darius to appoint. Okay, there we go. Technology, thank you for your patience. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom. So we're gonna stop there. A little background. This story takes part, uh, place 60 years after chapter one. Daniel is now not the sprightly teenager he once was. He is now an old man, probably upwards of 80 years old. So 30 years prior, about then, Jerusalem was destroyed. Solomon's temple, their, their kind of main center, that had been destroyed as well. 
So it's a really bad time for his people. And last thing, between the last chapter, chapter 5, and now, Babylon has been conquered by another empire, which is the Medo-Persian Empire. So we've gone from Babylon to the Medo-Persians, and a new king is on the throne. And this new empire, now the map will become relevant, is that big. It's huge. It is the biggest empire uh, known to man in human history um, so far. It's massive. So you can see how far it stretches out, like it's going all the way across to India, down the south to the southern tip of um, Egypt, up to the north, that's actually uh, the southern tip of Russia. It's massive. So it pleased Darius, that's the king, to appoint these satraps, these high-level governors throughout the kingdom. And with three chief ministers over them, one of whom was Daniel, the satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. So Daniel's in the top three. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the chief ministers and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. So here's Daniel, 80 years old. He's lived through two massive empires and at least three or four kings, depending on how you count. And he's, going to do, and he's still going and he's doing it better than anyone else to the point where the king says, look, you're amazing. Everything you touch is exceptional. You're making me look very good. So I want you to run my kingdom. He wants to put the most qualified man in the empire in charge of everything. And that's like the queen making you prime minister at the height of the British Empire's power. It's kind of, it's unbelievable power. So at this, the chief ministers and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct in, of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy, neither corrupt nor negligent. So if you are following the news at all, you will be aware that character assassinations in politics are the bread and butter almost of the political world. Um, finding dirt on other people is often how you play the game of power. And so there are certainly people of high integrity within the government and, pol- and the political world, but finding no corruption and negligence, that, that feels rare. And Daniel was one of these rare people. So finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So they're basically jealous and angry, and they're, they're kind of like, who's this foreigner running our country? Here's this Hebrew, this outsider. He's going to be number two in the kingdom. There's no way that's happening. So... These chief ministers and satraps went as a group to the king and said, may King Darius live forever. You can kind of already tell that there's some slight insincerity with this. The royal ministers, prefects, satraps, and advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days except to your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. So all agreed is definitely a lie there because where, where's Daniel? 
he's not there. So it's definitely not all people. And I imagine a lot of the people, the satraps that were working for Daniel, probably liked him too. So it's definitely not all of them. Now, your majesty, issue the degree, decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. So they appeal to this, his, the king's vanity. Become the center of worship over your new kingdom for a month. In the ancient Near Eastern cultures, actually seeing the king as divine was just standard. Uh, the, and, and the culture in large, they believed in many gods. They were pluralistic. Um, so, but on a political level, this is a brilliant idea because it means make him the center of power, make him the center of attention. He's the new king. This totally makes sense. So. Um, it's it's good political move. It's kind of thinking of like uh, North Korea and their worship of their leader. So now when Daniel learned that this decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. So that's interesting. It's just as soon as it happens, as soon as it's published, he's like, okay. Just go do what I always do. He prays visible to the whole world. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. Kind of almost feels slightly sad that they just went as a group and tried to catch him in the axe, but this is, this is their whole plan. This is all the setup. They, they knew they could count on his integrity. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to God or human being, except to you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So unlike Babylon or previous empires, the Medo-Persian empire had some kind of constitutional monarchy. Uh, so even the king is actually under the law. And in world history, that's progress. But it was manipulated in this case. So, oh, go back. Okay. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort to save him. So he realizes the game pretty quickly and tries to put a stop to it, but he can't. The wheels are already in motion. So somehow it slipped his mind that the number one guy is, is a faithful Hebrew and this would kill him. So it's interesting that he's not even mad. He's, he sees himself, he actually sees himself as divine as well, yet he doesn't care about the fact he's not being worshiped by Daniel. He wants to save him, and he's been played. The men went as a group to King Darius and said to him, Remember, your majesty, that according to the law of the Medes and Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So again, they're trying to, uh, they see that Darius is trying to put a stop to this. So they come back to Darius to bully their king into the law they just wrote for him. And so they, they, they hate Daniel so much, they are nagging a king. 
It's a dangerous game they're playing. So verse 16, so the king gave the order and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, may your God whom you serve continually rescue you. So the king remembers Daniel's faith. Everyone everywhere knows about Daniel's faith. It is not a secret. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den and the king sealed it with his own signet ring with the rings of the nobles so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. So I just want to point out, does this remind you of anything, this verse particularly? Daniel in a den, a stone rolled across its mouth and sealed. This echoes Jesus, his burial in the tomb. So verse 18. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him and he could not sleep. So I actually have an old Bible teacher that uh, loved this verse. He calls it, he feels called to royal fasting, where he fasts all night and breaks fast in the morning. And uh, I'm I'm also a fan of this type of fasting as well, you know, just just while you sleep. Um, But it's worth noting, the king has a genuine care and affection for Daniel. Despite the law he just signed, he knows Daniel has done nothing wrong, and he's really torn up by it. So, at the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, may the king live forever. This is an 80-year-old faithful man who declares honor for the king. That's the standard greeting. But um, the people who condemned him to die also did this. But you can tell with Daniel, he means it in honor. It means, you know, it's kind of like we we pray um, that the uh, the queen lives a a long life in our national anthem. Um, So it, it just, it just, he honors the king. It doesn't matter that he's been condemned to die by him. And it's just, it's just a, a very different attitude that he has. So, my God who sent his angel, he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. The whole chapter mirrors this story from chapter three that we heard about from Laura last week, this, the fiery furnace. There was also an angel there in the fire and these lions, they were not tame. It says, the angel shut the mouths of the lions. It's amazing. This was a supernatural act. So, verse 23. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he trusted in his God. Again, do you know, remember Fiery Furnace? The friends came out and there was no smell of smoke. Just, just like for Daniel, no wound was found on him. It was a supernatural intervention because he had trusted in his God. For those of you thinking, wait a minute. This decree is 30 days long. So isn't he just going to get caught like later today once he's lifted out and thrown right back into the lion's den? Because he's, he's still going to disobey this, this law. Um, well, 
There's actually a, a thing in the um, ancient Near East, especially in the Persian culture, that uh, there's a legal custom called innocence by ordeal, where a defendant, if they survived the ordeal, the test, the gods had protected them, and they would be found innocent of wrongdoing. So God had found him innocent in his sight. And so in chapter 3, that was the test of fire. And the most common example from the ancient Near East is, uh, is being thrown into a river, <laughs> which is barbaric. Um, you, if you didn't drown and you made it out, you were cleared by the gods. And if you died, well, you were guilty. Uh, it kind of has medieval tones to it, doesn't it? Um, so our legal system has hopefully improved since then. Um, but to, to that culture, it would have been a massive sign that the gods or Daniel's God specifically had cleared his name. He wasn't guilty. He's innocent, which would supersede that law. So verse 24. At the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den, along with their wives and children. And before they had reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. So these lions were pretty hungry. Um, an ancient historian, uh, Herodotus, re references this Persian custom to execute the family members along with the condemned. And I heard someone reference um, this was specifically to do with slander against someone. If they were found innocent, the punishment came back on you and your family because slandering someone's name should bear more consequences if they're found innocent. So don't accuse people lightly. Um, now, they, so they were punished with the same punishment they had planned for Daniel, which does align with one biblical principle, at least, uh, the law of sowing and reaping, or the Psalms puts it, the wicked are ensnared by the work of their own hands. However, Deuteronomy is very clear that for, uh, it forbids punishment being applied to families, uh, saying the parents are not to be put to death for their children, nor children to put death for their parents. So it's just, it's a barbaric, violent time in history. I think that's the point. So... Now, uh, King Darius wrote to all the nations and all peoples of every language and on the earth, may you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves he performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. So the, the, the ending of this story is actually huge. Um, first, Darius writes a letter to the entire kingdom declaring the power and glory of God Everyone must fear and revere this God of Daniel, calling him to glorify God and not him. Kind of a turnaround. Uh, and then that last line is actually really key. So during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. So if you have like an NIV or an ESV translation, um, it's more of a modern translation, you'll see there's a footnote uh, next to that name. And if you look down, it says, notice that it can be translated Darius, that is Cyrus the Persian. And most scholars think that's a better way to translate the Aramaic. So Darius and Cyrus were probably the same person. And that lines up better with history anyway. So um, kings in the Near East probably would have had uh, more than one name. 
And so let's talk about Cyrus the Persian for a second, who's also known to history as Cyrus the Great. So, uh, and, and also let's keep in, in the background of our minds uh, that according to the Bible, Daniel is now the guy that helped run his kingdom. So, Cyrus. This is from the National Geographic. They say, Cyrus has gone down in history as one of the most benevolent conquerors of all time, allowing his subjects to live and worship as they pleased. He placated the for no, this is now just from my notes. He placated the formal, formerly powerful Medes by involving them in his government. Under his rule, the Edict of Cyrus was published, which is the first known human rights declaration. Now, human rights are often considered a 20th century conception, but here we are in the 8th century BC with a document that declares everyone is entitled to freedom of thought and choice and all individuals should pay respect to one another. It underscores defending the oppressed and it sets boundaries around war and it respects human dignity and religious freedoms. So the former director of the British Museum, where it's kept, this edict they, they discovered, stated the cylinder was the first attempt we know about running a society, a state with different nationalities and faiths, a new kind of statecraft. And, so, and Cyrus's actually probably most renowned act of mercy was to free the Jews from Nebuchadnezzar. He had fought, he had fought Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king. He had forced them into exile, into Babylon. And um, he actually allowed them to go back to Jerusalem to start rebuilding the walls and funded it. And, and all of that's still to come in the book of Ezra in the Bible. So I can't help but see God's hand at work. I can't help but see God's calling for Israel to be a light to the nations being fulfilled in exile through God's promotion of Daniel. And Hebrews 11 puts it like this. What more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Japheth, about David and Samuel and the prophets. Daniel was numbered a prophet who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. That verse 33, that strongly references Daniel in the lion's den and also the fiery furnace, Daniel 3. And this is why I love Daniel. He was this faithful hero. He had this, he had this backbone, a spine. He, he was a hero. And just, he's just a brilliant man who stood the test, withstood the test. And he is inspiring. But I, as I explore this, I just kept wondering, okay, why didn't he shrink in, in fear? Because the story, it's hard to tell. Why, why, why does he stand up? Why did his faith not waver? How did he do it? And so back when he hears about the law for the first time, we see what he doesn't do. He doesn't plead with the king. There's no record of him trying to fight the power and change the law. He goes straight to the very action that's going to get him killed, designed to kill him. And as soon as he learns the decree has been published, it's just like he goes home, he climbs the stairs, and he's 80 years old. He goes to his room, faces towards Jerusalem, 
he gets down on his knees and he prays a prayer of thankfulness. That's what it says. He does this three times a day, not deviating one bit from his habit. And when they come and find him, they find him praying and asking God for what? Mercy. Help. Now, the odds are this practice was based upon these lines from 1 Kings 8. When your people Israel, this is um, Solomon in the dedication of the temple. When your people Israel have been defeated by an enemy because they have sinned against you, and when they turn their back on you and give praise to your name, sorry, when they turn back to you and give praise to your name, praying and making supplication to you in this temple, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land you gave to their ancestors. When the heavens are shut up and there's no rain because your people have sinned against you, and when they pray towards this place and give praise to your name and turn from their sin because um, because you have afflicted them, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel. Teach them the right way to live and send rain on the land you gave your people for an inheritance. So Daniel's just seen these parts, these, these fragments, and he's made it his practice to turn towards Jerusalem to pray for mercy because he wants to go home. For me, and I think about this story, I can think of a lot of the times I've doubted and I've not had courage. Um, and I've, I've certainly never faced uh, a den of lions. Or maybe I've actually done something because I felt God prompting me, but, but I've done it kind of half-heartedly. Um, and in James, the book of James in the New Testament, it says, a double-minded person is unstable in all they do. And James really isn't lying. It, if I lack the courage of my convictions, I really don't go very far. I don't see much fruit from my efforts. And so my, my question is, what's, what's, this rem- what's the remedy for this? You know, what set Daniel apart? And so often we may hear at this point in a sermon, you know, that we, uh, we should take all the things we know we should do, those things we know are right, and we hear, try harder, do better, put more effort in, push through, you really should. You should have gotten this by now. And that's one note we've heard. It happens in the world as well, and it happens in the church, and it happens probably most often in our own heads. We, we embrace effort from a place of deficiency, from a place of lack. We perform for the acceptance, and we strive from our shame. So that's one, that's one note. Then there is also this other note. Encouragement without courage. And it sounds like this. You are accepted. It's okay. Don't worry. Just believe in yourself. You're perfect the way you are. Or maybe in religious circles we hear, God is in control. You are weak, but he is strong. Just receive. And let me be the first to say, I actually believe many of those things. But here's the problem. When you misapply truth, you end up passive. This is encouragement 
without actual courage. You take those statements of truth and you don't apply truth to them. You don't apply courage because courage requires truth. Encouragement requires both truth and love. So we've probably seen that too. And in fact, I've experienced um, hearing about a Jesus that is presented without a backbone. He's got nothing to say that will make us uncomfortable. And the problem is, as soon as we open our Bible and we read what he says, his words punch us in the face. His words just cut us in the heart. And when we listen to him speak, he convicts us and empowers us to live very differently from how our culture operates. He takes us out of our comfort zone and he builds us up with this identity and respect. He wasn't passive. He avoided both these traps. So I know when I've listened to, I've operated in these mindsets of striving from shame or having that kind of, that weak encouragement without courage, it's produced no fruit, no no lasting difference. So again, I want to ask, what was driving Daniel? What made him go to the lion's den? Was he just excellent because he was talented and had it together? Or was he just kind of just stuck in his ways because he just kind of had this pattern, couldn't be bothered to change? Or, you know, why, why wasn't he living in fear of what other people might think or do? And I believe this is for us today because if we give in to the fear of what other people think, it will destroy our lives unless we have something that reframes how we think and we feel and we live. So I want to look at Daniel 9. Let's read it. So this is actually, uh, before we start reading it, this is actually at, um, right at the start of Darius's reign over Babylon in his first year, so right before we start our story in Daniel 6. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah, the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting, in sackcloth, and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love to those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commandments and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our ancestors, and to all the people of the land. I'm jumping down to verse 17. Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, our God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. For your sake, my God, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. 
He's praying this as he looks out from Babylon towards the horizon. And he knows beyond that horizon is Jerusalem. The city he saw fall as a teenager. The city he was dragged out of by an invading army. I love this line. He says, now we don't make requests because of we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. It's a really humble prayer. He's, he's already withstood so many tests. He's got, you know, a really righteous, good deed thing going on. But he doesn't care about that. He's like, he's appealing on behalf of his people. Not separate from them, but as one of them, saying, we have, we've, just, we've just messed this all up. And he appeals to God's character, not, not his works. He doesn't use his own character's leverage before God either. Daniel was broken for his people. He was living for something bigger than his own life. He doesn't shift the blame, doesn't rest upon his good deeds. He was there when his city fell. He was forcibly removed. His city was in ruins. His people were defeated. He would have seen his neighbors die by the sword, by the people that captured him. And there's no mention of Daniel's family. I mean, we don't know where they are. He was an exile. And yet he knew it's because Israel had turned away from the promises they had made to God. He saw this as a consequence of a broken nation. But he was broken for redemption. He was praying for their redemption. 70 years, he knew God had gone with them. And I think, I think this is where his drive came from. Because when you see what truly matters, the fear of what other people think just falls into the background. It's, it only matters so much. It's only a small thing. Because there's something bigger and more real that you are living for. And that does come at a cost. But it brings clear perspective and clarity so long as you keep it remembered. I really do believe in healing. I'm not saying we should live from a place of a lack of healing. But God uses your scars for his glory. So I, I would ask you, have you lost something? Have you been broken? Have you been to a place where part of you died? Or maybe it happened to someone you love. When we bring those broken pieces before God, he brings us a redeemed life. He brings us that perspective on what matters and what doesn't. Because it is the gospel message that in Christ's death, those things died and we find new life. So I just want to share a tiny bit of uh, personal story for, from my life. Um, this, uh, on the, that's me as a young boy, and that's, that's my mum. And uh, I lost her when I was 16 uh, to cancer. And it really brought into sharp focus that I was living in a very different kingdom. There's also my grandpa and um, Chris. That's Chris. Do you recognize him? Can you? Um, and Dennis and Melanie, they're, they're an American couple, um, really close family friends. So my mom, she died as she lived. She, she actually had a, an incredibly profound, deep love for Jesus, if you ever knew her. Uh, her life was lived in the hands of a loving God. But her loss, it broke me. She was the most important woman in my life. 
And despite incredible mother figures that I do have around me, I have never found the same affection she had for me, except from God. Her death put into sharp focus what was real and what wasn't. And I, I really, truly believe one day death will be reversed and I will see her again. But I knew in that moment she wasn't there now. Her death showed me that life is more than just what's here and now, though. I saw my temporary loss through the light of eternity, beyond the here and now. And I knew that she was with the one she lived her life for. And that gave me joy. Eternity with Jesus really is the ultimate perspective on everything broken. Even though I was 16 when I lost her, the measure of her, her love endures in me today. Not only in me, but in my whole family and anyone who called her a friend. She really was a wonderful woman, and I'm sure you would have liked her. The Bible is clear that the love we give is of eternal worth. It is what lasts. It is what endures. It will not be burned up if tested by fire. That's what drove Daniel. And I, I believe this love for his people, that's what drove him to pray and count his life as nothing, because he was broken for something bigger than himself. There's a famous line by Shakespeare and Julius Caesar that says, a coward dies a thousand times before his death, but the valiant taste death but once. And that was Daniel, for sure. He had already died to the world and found life in a kingdom still yet to come. And when I was asking God about what, what the story is even about, he was telling me it's a story of fire, conviction that cannot be overturned. You will not be controlled by the times and opinion of others. You must and you will demonstrate your life is made of something different. Do not become like your neighbor. And I know we are called to love our neighbor, but we're not like them. We are in this world and not of it. And so our lives should feel and look different. God is inviting us to live different with money and sex and power. Those who call Christ their Lord are different. Believe, I believe we are generous without giving in to the fear of lack. We have sexual integrity without giving in to the drive of lust. We lift up the weak with our power rather than giving in to the self-protection that we sometimes feel. It's an open-handed way of living. They speak with integrity, holding to their word, even when it comes at the expense of other people's respect for us. They care for the forgotten and the outcast instead of seeking the recognition of this world. They choose love and forgiveness from the heart when they are not owed it. That's what it means to be Christ-like. I don't have time to tell you stories about Melanie and my grandpa in the middle. They've all gone on to be with Jesus. Actually, can you indulge me for just one moment? Is that all right? Okay. I want to tell you one story about my grandpa. So when he passed away, the paper posted a long obituary, a story about his life. We discovered lots of things about him, and it was amazing. So someone wrote a letter in response, which the paper also published. And it's, uh, it reads this. I served Horace, what was his name, Horace Law, at his flag, as his flag lieutenant during the first two years as controller of the Navy. He was a naval man. I was then sent to do a course at Chatham Barracks before taking up a sea appointment. One day, as the duty student, I, it was my turn to escort a visiting lecturer to the wardroom for lunch. He was recently retired with a gallant war record 
As we walked, I suggested that he might know Horace Law, as the two men were about the same vintage. On hearing the name, the lecturer stopped, turned to me, and said in a serious voice, Horace Law is the nearest man to Jesus I know. The letter goes on. Horace Law's strong and dynamic Christian faith was indeed the defining element of his life. I count it a privilege to have known him. And that is what it means to live for eternity. I actually don't have time to do much of the rest of this. So I'll just, I'll just skip all this. <laughs> Let's go back to Hebrews 11. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning at shame, sat down at the right hand of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so you will not grow weary and lose heart. This is right after we talked about Daniel. So my questions for us today. How do you want to live different? With your money? How do you want to live different with your sex life? Your sexuality? How do you want to live different with power and influence? Because... I think this is the invitation that God's giving us. He wants, to, he wants us to live different so other people get thirsty. So at the end of our days, people say that kind of thing about our lives. That we, we actually live for something bigger than us that doesn't define, we're not informed by just the, the consumption of the values of our culture. There's a, there's a higher way that God is calling us to. And so, you know, this, this brings into sharp focus how easily and we, we give in to sin and, and settle for smallness and misery when there's a greater promise on offer, a greater life worth living, a life that has a spine, a life that is free of shame, a life that has courage at the heart of it. So that's, that's, my, that's my challenge to you today. Thank you for um, allowing me a bit of extra time to speak to you today. Um, Paul, do you want to come up?